For the remainder of July and August, we're going to spend our time on Sunday mornings reading through some summer psalms. These are taken from the fourth book of the Psalter, Psalms 100, or 90 through 106, a portion of the psalms that doesn't receive a lot of attention. But I think the psalms are great for preaching in the summer because I mean, people are gone, they're in, they're out. There's, there's no extended story that has to be you know, built upon week after week. They can just each be sort of a standalone piece of material. And so I would have gotten to them earlier if it weren't for the scheduling difficulties that we've had. But to get ready for Psalm 90, consider this. Imagine that there is a bank that credits your account each morning with $86,400. It carries over no balance from day to day. Every morning, the money is there. Every evening, it deletes whatever part of the balance you failed to use. What would you do if you had such a bank? You would, of course, draw out every last cent, of course. And each of us has such a bank account. The bank account's name is time. Every morning it credits you with 86,400 seconds. Every night it writes off as lost whatever of that part of the account you failed to invest a good purpose. It carries over no balance. It allows no overdraft. Each day it opens a new account for you. Each night it burns the remains of the day. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. There's no going back. There's no drawing against tomorrow. You must live in the present on today's deposits and invest it to derive the utmost benefit. I don't know who wrote those words, but they are, I find them particularly powerful and appropriate for Psalm number 90. A prayer of Moses, it says, the man of God. So this is attributed to Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you ever brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. Or like a watch. The watches were three-hour increments. A thousand years in your sight is, is like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep away in the sleep, you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. This is a psalm of lament. The community um, is lamenting some unspecified disaster that has come upon them and has come upon them because of their sin. The psalmist in Psalm 90, Moses, believes that God's anger has been kindled because of their unfaithfulness, and he asks God to, to relent of his great anger and to, to deliver them, as we'll, just, we'll see now. Verse 7, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80. 
if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Oh, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And finally, relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. How many of you are old enough to remember the name Jim Croce? Yeah. Yeah, Croce was a popular folk singer and songwriter back in the late 1960s, early 1970s. His two most famous songs were the only two that made it into the very top of the Billboard charts. They are Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, which I didn't even know that one. Uh, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, and then his most famous song, The Haunting Song. Anybody remember it? Time in a Bottle. Time in a Bottle is an autobiographical story, uh, a common refrain that I think all of us can relate to, but especially celebrities or musicians who make it big. If you, you finally make it to the top, you find that there's just very little time left for your family. So Croce had a newborn son. He was one year old when he wrote this song. And he found that he was on the road so much he hardly had a moment to spend with his one-year-old son. So he writes Time in a Bottle, and the chorus is that, is that haunting part. He says, there's, there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. There never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do when you find them. Sadly enough, if you're familiar with Jim Croce's story, then you know that his time was, was even much shorter than he or anybody else could have imagined. On September the 21st, 1973, he died in a plane crash at the age of 30. Time is short, right? We all know that. Um, how short? <laughs> None of us know that. In verse 10... The psalmist singles out two ages which seem to be kind of especially long to him. Did you notice that? He says, our days may come to be 70 years or, or 80 years, he says, if our strength endures. So when you do the calculation, 70 years, how many hours is that? It's 61,000 uh, hours. 61,000 hours sounds like quite a lot. But then you calculate further, 61,000 hours is only 25,000 days, and 25,000 days is only 3,571 weeks. And if you're 35, or over the age of 35 this morning, half of those 3,571 weeks, half of those are already gone. Look at your hand for just a second. Take a oh, come on. Well, let's be interactive. <laughs> when you look at your hand, 
or when you look at your body in a mirror, what you should see is grass. Moses says, we are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning, it, it springs up new, but by evening, it is dry and withered. Our lives are like grass. He says, death comes upon us like a flood. He says, our lives are, are just, they're nothing more than a dream that's here for a nanosecond and gone. So what do we do about that? Do we live with anxiety knowing that none of us have any idea how many hours or minutes we have left in this world? Uh, none of us know how our story on this earth will end exactly. Uh, well, verse 12 tells us what we are to do. It's, verse 12 is the money verse of this passage. It's the one that you hear preached uh, on New Year's or around New Year's Eve. Verse 12, what do we do? We teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, he says. I really like how the old translation puts it. It says, teach us to number our days aright. To number my days aright. This is not the psalmist saying, God help me to count. Help me to know that Tuesday comes after Monday and so on. Help me to multiply the... The the days by the number of years. This is not asking God to help you pull out even an actuarial table and do the statistical work and figure out what day are you most is your greatest probability for dying. I mean, how many? No, it's for us to number our days aright. For us to do so means that we live in in light of the cross. Of course, we live as citizens of the kingdom, and we anticipate the resurrection that lies ahead. To number our days are right. It's not mathematics. It's spiritual mindedness. And three things happen when you begin to do this. First, when you begin to number your days are right. First, time slows down rather than speeding up, which is the very opposite of our instincts. Time slows down and you slow down. Rather than speeding up, which is the very opposite of our instincts. Whenever people consider the common hypothetical question that if, if you had only one year left of life to live, well, what would you do? And we've asked, I mean, that's maybe even an icebreaker at, at a dinner party or something. If you had only a year of life, what would you do? And most people, most people are like, I, well, I would just get busy checking everything off of my bucket list. I mean, the bucket list is what always comes up. You know, uh, there's some, there's not much time left, and so there's many things that I want to do before I die. I want to run a marathon. I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I want to see all of America's national parks. I want to taste test all the wines of Simi Valley and just go down the bucket list. The prevailing assumption is that if life is short, you go faster and you do more. But actually... If you look at an older man or woman, and especially if you look at an older Christian man or woman, I mean, they know that they aren't going to live a whole lot longer, yet they're not in a rush. They move slowly, sometimes at a glaciated pace. (laughs) They drive slowly. They go for long walks. They're comfortable sitting still, sitting still in silence for long periods of time, you look at an older man or woman and you see a peaceful way of life. Very hard for us to come by these days. You know, a century ago, when we came to church this morning, I mean, every single church in America was surrounded by what a century ago? They were surrounded by cemeteries. 
every Sunday that you came to church, you could not help but walk by gravestones to remind you of the brevity of your life. Today, our cemeteries are where? Well, they're usually located out of town, out of sight, and out of mind because we don't want to think about death. But back then, they weren't nearly as afraid to ponder the brevity of life. I learned this curious a bit of trivia this week. Did you know, and I've seen pictures of this, but it never made sense to me, that in the Middle Ages, a lot of your medieval scholars, have you seen the pictures where there's a skull sitting either on their desk or on their shelves? They would intentionally put a skull there that they would see every day when they were working in their books and and so on, just to, to remind them to ponder, to think about as a vivid reminder their mortality and the brevity of their lives. When your days are numbered, you have more time to pray. When you have less time to live, you have more time to pray. And when you have less time to go, 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 you have more time to serve. And when you have hardly any time at all, when you have hardly any time at all, you end up having plenty of time to love. David Roper, many of our friends and you know, admired pastor, a longtime pastor of Cole Community Church, he writes these words, prayer and love, these are the mighty works of the old soul. Second, when you begin to number your days aright, the parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 25 becomes extremely important to you. The majority of us, we know that we waste a great deal of our $86,400, and we live with a tremendous sense of guilt over the fact that, man, I've wasted so much time. There have been so many days that my head's hit the pillow, and out of that 86400 I probably spent 25 cents of it in, in something worthwhile. We squandered a great deal of our time. We realize, we realize that fact, but... Uh, we don't do anything about it. <laughs> We're guilty, but maybe not guilty enough to actually make any systemic changes and do something about it. And so that's why Jesus Christ comes to us and he lights a fire under our, our backsides in Matthew chapter 25, telling this story. I'm going to retell it utilizing Eugene Peterson's the paraphrastic uh, reading of the message on Matthew 25. A CEO was going off to an, on a, an extended trip, so he called his, his department heads together. To one, he gave $500,000, to another, 200000 to a third, 100000 all depending on their departments and abilities. After he left, the first manager went to work, and he doubled the CEO's investment. The second did the same, but then the man with $100,000... He decided to leave it in the bank to gain marginal interest. After a long absence, the master of the three servants came back and he settled up with them. The one given $500,000 showed him how he had doubled his investment. The CEO committed him, job well done, sir. From now on, I will make you my, uh, I am making you my partner. The manager with the $200,000 showed him that he too had doubled his investment Good work. I'm also making you my partner. The last one said, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you. So I found a good place in the bank, and I secured your money 
there. Here it is, back to you, safe and sound, down, uh, returned in full, down to the last cent. And what was the CEO's response? He was furious. He yelled, it's criminal of you to have lived so cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? Take the 100000 and give it to the one who risked the most. And get rid of this play-it-safe uh, lackey who won't go out on a limb. So what's the parable? It's the parable of the talents. Several things to note from Eugene Peterson, Peterson's retelling of the story. Uh, you know, he highlights the cautiousness of the first man. The first, or, or rather, the, the third man, the one with the $100,000, This cautiousness, this fearfulness of the third servant leads to a a paralysis of inaction. Whatever he's been given, uh, his insecurities, his fears, whatever, it leads to a paralysis of activity. Could that be true of me? (laughs) Second, notice that in each one of these, What's the, the payout that the, uh, the CEO or the master gives to the servants? It's the payout of, he says, I will make you my partner. Or in the case of the actual parable, you know, I will make you a ruler. What is he paying out? What is what's being given? You're being given responsibilities of rulership in the future by Jesus Christ. The, one, the person who's faithful with, with what they've been given in this life, somehow, and it's debated among theologians is like, does this happen in the, during the millennium that everybody gets their, their rulership, or does this happen as part of all of eternity and the new heavens and the earth? But somehow or another, you were delegated kind of joint rulership, co-rulership with the Lord Jesus Christ in the world that's yet to come. And finally, the emphasis on doubling the return on investment begs the question, what would doubling God's return on investment that he's put into me, what would that mean? What would it look like for me to then go out and do that in my life? That's a question that you have to consider. I mean, that's what the the parable is asking you to do. What would it look for you to double God's return on investment? I mean, anytime we invest in people, we always know that's a good investment because people will last forever. Money and material things are going to burn up, but people will live forever. Because ultimately, the parable causes us to reconsider our views on productivity. A biblical view of productivity is not getting lots and lots done or getting more done than the other guy. Productivity, true productivity, is using your gifts, talents, time, energy, and enthusiasm for the good of others and the glory of, of God. And you remember the old adage, only, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how glad I will be that the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. The biblical understanding of productivity and kingdom um, will free you from lesser pursuits and help you focus on the ones that matter the most. Thirdly, when you begin to number your days aright, you discover that time is not your enemy. Time is not even a frenemy. <laughs> time, is, time is not a hostile place from which we must flee. Rather, time is a point of rendezvous with God. 
Another interesting piece of trivia I came across this week. Do you know where or when it was that clocks were invented? Clocks were developed, well, I think it was, um, okay, I don't have an actual date, but uh, they were developed in and for and by the monks in the monastery of all places. The Benedictine monks were committed to prayer at set hours in the day, much like the Jewish idea of watches in the night, um, they were committed to prayer during the course of the day, and it was crucial they could discover a way to call the whole community to prayer. So when the clocka rang, that was the signal for everyone to come in and, and pray the hours of the day. And do you, have you ever tried praying the hours of the day before? Um, if you've never done it, it's, it's quite interesting. It, it's In essence, you just end up praying all the psalms throughout the day. You either pray them or you chant them. That's what the monks did. But I thought, how cool. Clocks were invented. Why? To help human beings become God conscious throughout the course of their day. That's cool. And I think that's at the heart of what it means for us to number our days aright. Uh, Our culture thinks that clocks are created for, I don't know, time management, (laughs) right? Time, time is something that we must master with, with good time management skills. We must efficiently squeeze the most that we can get out of time and just like maximize our productivity and our efficiency. But if we think instead of the hours of the day as points, as, as opportunities to rendezvous with God, with Jesus Christ, we're going to become increasingly less time conscious and increasingly more Christ conscious. When we see our clocks on our phones, when we allow that to help us practice the presence of God, a.k.a. Brother Lawrence, then we receive time as a sheer gift of grace and as a point of connection. So, what's the difference? What, what difference would it make this week if you thought of your time as an opportunity to rendezvous? Just a few more concluding thoughts. David Brooks, in his book, The Road to Character, talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. He writes, the resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume, the skills that you bring to the job market, and those that contribute to external success. Eulogy virtues are the ones that get talked about at your funeral, the ones that exist at the core of your being, whether you are kind, brave, honest, or faithful, what kind of relationships you formed. And what he argues in the book is that much of our society is set up to promote resume virtues, but the kingdom of God is built on the latter. If you're a college student or you're a high school student, what you need to do is to consider this, not what will I have accomplished when I reach 40, but rather who do I want to be? Because who I want to be matters so much more than your degree and your job, etc., etc. Isn't it funny how we as humans, we're always, we always seem to be surprised by the passage of time. We say things like this. We say, oh, this year has just flown by, man. Can't believe that it's July already. Wow. As, as though there's something abnormal about July's arrival this year. <laughs> or, oh my, look how, 
Look how Cora's grown. I can't believe she's going to be a sophomore this year, as if it should shock me that she made it to the 10th grade. <laughs> and we're funny that way. I'm, really, if an alien from outer space were to hear us speak about time, they'd think, what a strange planet. The rotation of that planet is always either speeding up or slowing down. How strange. Because really, nothing should feel more normal to us than the passage of time. As a human being, nothing is more constant And yet nothing is more discombobulating than trying to reflect back on the last 6, 12, or 18 months. It's always weird. The reason for this peculiar feature of life, C.S. Lewis said, is because deep down inside of us, we know that we were made for something else. God has placed eternity in every man's heart. A deep sense that we shouldn't be enslaved to the sands of the hourglass. That we are meant to live in an eternal rendezvous. I don't know if you caught this in verse 1 but uh, of Psalm 90, but it serves this, this uh, verse and this hymn. No, okay. Let's start over. This verse of this psalm serves as the basis for a famous hymn. That hymn being... Our God, oh oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. He is the eternal home we're missing. We want to go home and be with him where death is no more. We have $86,400 of minutes. Every night, it's written off as lost, whatever we have failed to invest a good purpose Therefore, we must start the investment of our days praying and finding our eternal home and praying the prayer that is in verse 14. This is, this is your take-home practical application of this sermon. Just this week, pray verse 14 to start every day. Look with me. This is it. Pray this. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, O Lord, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Amen.